in salvation, we are not only bound to Jesus Christ, but we are also bound to his body, the church. When we think of of our salvation, oftentimes, uh, especially in our culture, but but oftentimes, uh, I think all the way around, we're just encouraged to think of it in individual terms, and there certainly is an element to that. Each person must believe for themselves. Each person must put their faith in Jesus Christ for the, for themselves. But when get, when God unites us to Jesus Christ by His Spirit through faith. He also unites us to his body. He also unites us to his church. And so what I hope you'll see today is that when we come to Jesus Christ, there is this bond. And that that bond with other people, with other believers, other believers in other places, other believers throughout time, this great congregation of the faithful, of the believing in all times, in all places, that has its expression in, in local churches, that we ought to be expressing our unity, our love for one another through concrete expressions of love. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 16. This is the last message that we're going to have in 1 Corinthians. What I hope you'll see first is the bond between the prosperous and the poor. The bond between the prosperous and the poor. Read verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. See the bond between the prosperous and the poor. Look at what it says. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. The collection for the saints that that Paul is talking about there is this collection for the poor who are in Jerusalem. Uh, This is probably the idea that's there in some place like Galatians 2.10 where it says that the other apostles enjoined upon Paul, they said to him, Make sure that you remember the poor. It probably meant the poor uh, Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Because what had happened in Jerusalem was that many people from many Jews from other nations had become Christians. On the day of of Pentecost, they had believed the good news about Jesus raised from the dead. They had trusted in him as their king, as the Messiah, as the Christ. And many of them had determined to stay there. Not only that, but there was also a famine in the land. And so this was kind of like a refugee camp that got hit by a natural disaster. Many people are not even able to take care of their basic needs. Many of them are on the edge of starvation. And so Paul is going around and instructing the churches to take up a collection to send back to the church in Jerusalem to take care of them. Now, I think this is one of the things that is missed in the New Testament teaching on care for the poor. We're to do good to everyone as we have opportunity. Nothing that I'm saying has anything to do with, with, with saying that we should not help our neighbor, that we shouldn't help the poor. But the Bible is very clear, the New Testament is very clear, has very clear principles about helping those within the church, that there's a priority there. There's a priority to make sure that there are no people who are impoverished or destitute within the church. There shouldn't be any orphans in the church. Those, who, those who, who are without a family, ought, the church ought to be their family, even to the point of taking them into our own homes. There should be no worthy widows who go uncared for. The church ought to take responsibility to make sure that Christian families are taking care of their own 
And also, if they don't have a Christian family, to make sure that the church is taking care of those who belong to our family. There is this concern for the poor. For those who are unable to take care of their basic needs, those who are hungry, those who are, are without clothes, those, those who are without basic needs, the church needs to step in and take care of those who are its own. It's like taking care of our own family. Of course, we ought to take care of our neighbor. Of course, we ought to love our neighbor. But we have a special responsibility to those who call themselves our brothers, who are committed to our body. We watch out for them. And you know, I'd even suggest that we would make a lot more progress in alleviating poverty by focusing on those who are in the church. I think there's even a sense at which there is, there is a, there's, there's more that could be done by working with those who have the spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of self-control than there is just trying to alleviate poverty in general. Of course, we would love to eradicate poverty everywhere. And Jesus will eradicate poverty everywhere at his return. But certainly we should do all that we can to make sure that those who are a part of our body, those who are a part of the church, those who are confessing Jesus Christ and joined to him are taken care of. No one should have too much and no one should have too little. And no one, uh, that, that is the principle that we go by. Of course, here there is not only those within the church though, there is this church back in Jerusalem. There is our concern not only for the people in our own local congregation, but a concern for the, the impoverished everywhere. Now, this is a unique situation. Like I said, this is a, this is a refugee camp that got hit by a natural disaster. This is, this is relief work. This is people who, who have no way of providing for their own basic needs. Not every situation is going to match that. Not every situation of poverty uh, calls for building houses and distributing food. Some require a, a different kind of approach. But doesn't this encourage us to keep our eyes open for opportunities of helping the poor everywhere, especially helping the poor within the church, being mindful of the church, other churches in, in other areas? Now, this is not just a, this is, this is those who have helping those who are, do not have their basic needs being met. And so we ought to be keeping our eyes open for those kinds of opportunities, those kinds of, of, of possibilities, of, of making concrete expressions of saying, we are one in Jesus Christ. Here's how we show that. We have been loved by Jesus Christ. Here's how we show love for one another, even our brothers who are in a different part of the world. And of course, this statement with the helping the church in Jerusalem is not only a not only an expression of love, it's not just a, a practical situation, it's also, also a theological statement. The, this was Gentiles helping Jews. The Gentiles were benefiting spiritually through the heritage that had come through the Jews. The Messiah, the Christ, came from the Jews. Uh, the, the scriptures are the Jewish scriptures that they used. And so they are returning materially to those who have benefited them spiritually. That is, this is the, the, the distinction between Jew and Gentile was the most significant social division in the first century. Now, no situation that we have now is going to match that perfectly, but shouldn't that make us think about how can we make, how can we make concrete expressions of, uh, that, that say there are no social divisions within the body of Christ? There are, no, there are no divisions between those who are Jew and Gentile or divisions based upon race or nationality. 
Instead, we are one in Christ, and we ought to look for ways to do that. We also see some practical examples about how, how to do this. There is this collection, and Paul gives, gives instructions about how to take up the collection. He says on Sunday, that's the first day of the week, that's in, in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the early days, that was when the, the church began to meet. And he says on the first day of the week, I want everyone who has set something aside to, to collect it. That is, most people in those times would, would get paid on a daily basis. Your, your typical worker got paid at the end of the day. And so they were to set aside a little bit out of what they received during the week, and that was all to be collected into the common fund for the relief of the poor. And this just gives us a simple principle, a, a very basic budgeting principle, that if you're going to give, you have to plan to give. You know, a lot of people don't give because they are hoping that at the end of their pay period, at the end of their, their, their month or their two weeks, they might have some extra money to give to the poor, to the common life of the church, to the support of those who teach. That just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. You're not just going to come to the end of the month and find a couple of hundred dollars rattling around in your checking account. It's just not going to happen. You have to plan for that the same way that you plan to pay your mortgage or your car payment or your electricity bill. What, how significant is Jesus Christ to you? Well, that takes concrete expression even in, your, even in your pocketbook, even in your checkbook, even with your debit card. He also says, as each one prospers during the week, it's, it's, there is this proportionality. Those, if, if you don't have very much, you shouldn't feel bad about not being able to contribute very much. In another place, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he talks about how, how the giving that is called for here is not to make you impoverished. It's not to make you poor. So if you don't have very much, you might not contribute as much. At the same time, when God gives you more, he gives you more with the intention that you would also give more. Those who have more have greater responsibility to give more. Do you really think that God always gives you more just so that you can enjoy more for yourself? We always, we, we do have permission to enjoy good things from the Lord. But God gives us more so that we might contribute more. And the other thing I want you to notice, notice here, just in, at the end, is look, it, it, it says here that each, each of you should give. If you're not giving, you should start giving. Now, I'm not an arm twister, okay? I'm not going to twist your arm to, to get you to give. I'll tell you what, though, when you don't give, you're being disobedient. And when you don't give, you are stunting your own spiritual maturity. You're missing out. You're hurting yourself. Now, lots of times when, when people don't give, they, they're kind of like roommates that I had in college. They never had money for the rent. They never had money for bills. They had never had money for groceries for the house. But they always had money for new clothes. They always had money for video games. They always had money for going out. And I think that a lot of our excuses for not giving are laughable. They are ridiculous. And so we ought to examine ourselves and, and make sure that we are being obedient from the heart to contribute to, to the poor, to the relief of the poor, contributing to the common life of the church, and contributing to those who are, 
are doing the Lord's work. And so we ought to, we ought to be mindful of that. You also see there that Paul, Paul makes sure to protect himself. You know, he says, I'm going to let you guys pick out some people to send the money. There's no, there's no, there's no, hey, Paul is making sure, hey, I'm not keeping the money. He's above reproach. We ought to do the same thing. We seek to do the best that we can to make it clear that, that we're not in this to, for, for, uh, for the sake of greed. We're not trying to, there's nothing about our, our church, I hope, that sends off the signal that, hey, these, these people are just trying to, to, to build their own kingdom. That's not our desire. Our desire is to see you grow in obedience and maturity and, and to see the, uh, God's, God's work carried out through the contribution of those who have been saved, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. So we've seen there that the bond between the prosperous and the poor. Next, I want you to see the bond between the church and gospel workers. Look at verses 5 and read through verse 12. It says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the, the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it is not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. One of the things I want you to notice there is that both Paul has this expectation for both himself and for Timothy that the church is going to show hospitality and give help to him and Timothy. The church is going to help him. Why, why is that? Look at verse 10. They are doing the work of the Lord. He's talking about himself. He's talking about, he's talking about Timothy. You know, the church has this responsibility to show hospitality, to give help to, to those who are doing the work of the Lord. And you, you see that, that Paul makes it clear Timothy's a part of that. You, know, you think about it this way. Timothy is not the headliner. And the, the Corinthian church was just the kind of church that really liked to have the upper echelon teachers of God's word. You know, they wanted to have Peter. They wanted to have Paul. They wanted to have Apollos. They even debated uh, among one another about who was the better. And, hey, I'm with this guy, and I'm with this guy, and I'm with this guy. And, and Paul says, make sure that no one despises Timothy. He's doing the work of the Lord. Okay, he's not Paul. He's not an apostle. He's not the headliner. But we ought to be watching out for ways to help those who are doing the work of the Lord. And so that's, that's a responsibility that the church has to support those who teach, support those who are doing gospel work, support those who are preaching the gospel and teaching sound doctrine. We also see there a, a little bit of an example about decision-making. You know, Paul is an apostle. He receives revelation from God, directly from God, and then speaks that to the churches. And yet here, it doesn't appear as if he receives some kind of word from God. He simply starts to make plans. He makes plans based upon the circumstances that he sees. What's he see in Ephesus? He sees an opportunity for work, for effective work. And so he says, hey, I'm going to stay here until Pentecost. I'm going to keep working here. But then he says, hey, I've made my plans, but this is all if the Lord permits. 
Paul knows that he has plans, and he knows that his plans need submitted, be, to be submitted to God's plans. And so he puts that in, 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 uh, in reality there. That's what he's going to do. Uh, you can even see that with Apollos. Paul urges Apollos to go to Corinth. And Apollos says, I don't want to right now. I'll come later. Not coming right now. And there's even this freedom uh, between brothers of, of this is not something that where, where Paul, where we can just let, we can let one another make decisions that are not sinful, not foolish. Maybe even, maybe even we think they all make a different decision. But we allow, we allow that to be made with, within a person's conscience. And so Paul, Paul doesn't, doesn't rebuke Apollos. He urges him as a brother. Hey, I think this would be a good idea. Apollos says, I don't think this is a good idea. So Apollos doesn't come. The last thing I want you to see there is there where Paul is, is talking about the open door. There's an open door. That is, this is kind of like this window of opportunity. It's probably the way we would put it. There's this window of opportunity in Ephesus. There's also opposition there. Opportunities and opposition go together. We don't, we don't, we don't always, we're not like, Christians aren't supposed to be like water and always moving toward the lowest possible point. Sometimes the open, the open door comes with the opponents on the other side. And so we still keep working. We don't fear. We don't get afraid. Instead, we keep doing effective work. We keep seizing the opportunities that we have to do the work. That's what Paul did. And that's what we are encouraged to do as well in following his example. All right, next, I want you to see the connection between courage and love, the bond between courage and love. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. These are the final main commands that Paul gives to the church in Corinth. And there is this connection between almost, between everything that he said so far and, and, this kind of wrapping everything up. First, first part is, is this kind of, this kind of speech like a, like a coach might give to a team before a big game or like a commander might give to his army before battle. Be, be watchful. That is, be on guard. Watch around you. Don't, don't fall asleep. Don't get drunk. Don't be lazy. Instead, wake up. Be aware. Watch out. And he says, stand firm in the faith. Don't believe these false teachers. They've tried to teach you one thing. There have been, there have been people who've come into your church. There are always going to be people coming into every kind of church who are trying to teach some kind of false teaching, trying to disturb you, trying to trouble you. You stand firm in the faith. There were some who were even denying or questioning the resurrection. Paul says, don't, don't have anything to do with that. Instead, act like men. Be courageous. Be strong. You know, it's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to stand up and to contend for the truth. To stand firm, to battle for the truth, to be immovable. And so there is this element of courage in the Christian faith. You cannot be a coward and a Christian. You have to be ready to stand firm. Lord, help us, right? And he will. But there has to be this element of courage, this element of firmness, this element of of watchfulness. Then he also says, let everything that you do be done in love. If I'm on guard, if I'm firm, if I'm courageous and strong, but do not have love, I am nothing, right? 
Isn't that what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13? Isn't that what he teaches with his own example in 1 Corinthians 9? But you see that these things go together. Courage and love go together. There is standing firm in the truth. And there is expressing that truth in love. Love is kind and patient. It is not rude or self-seeking. And so we ought, to, we ought to be living that out. We ought to, in our, as individuals, be holding to the truth and expressing it in love. As a church, we ought to be holding to the truth and be doing everything that we do in love. That's the, sum, that, that's the summation of everything, that the, the summative command of everything that Paul has said. Next, see the church and the respectable. Those people who ought to be respected and recognized in the church. Read verses 15 through 17, 15 through 18. It says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people the corinthians were those who often valued and supported those people who who were most charismatic were most eloquent those who were eloquent and rich that's who the corinthians liked and paul is saying look at these kind of men like stephanus you know stephanus was the first convert when i came in the whole region that you live in, he was the first one. And he devoted himself to the saints. What, what kind of men ought, to you, ought you to respect? You know, we, we, show, we show what we value by the men that we recognize, by the people that we recognize. It's not, you don't have to go far in the American church to find pastors and leaders who are recognized and respected for all kinds of superficial reasons, who themselves lack character and integrity, who do not watch over their lives and their doctrine the way that Paul told Timothy to. We ought to be recognizing and respecting those who are devoting themselves to the church. Not those who are most eloquent, not those who are wealthiest, not most those who seem most super spiritual as many of the Corinthians did. But those who are devoting themselves to the church, those who are, are steady and, and respectable and, and committed to, the, to, the lo- to loving the church, those are the men you ought to respect. I, always, always, the, the, the power of models and examples is powerful always. Who do we lift up as examples to be followed? Should be those who are committing themselves, devoting themselves to the church. And of course, you see, you see Paul's love for the church in Corinth here. It was like when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, if you're looking for any names, there they are. It was like they were a little piece of Corinth that came to Paul. Paul said some hard things to the Corinthians. It's one of the hardest letters in the New Testament. And there are some hard letters in the New Testament. It's one of the hardest. He said some hard things, but he loved them. He loved them. I was, I was so happy to see some of my brothers from Corinth. I rejoice to see you. 
It was like a little piece, a little piece of Corinth. Our, our, they refreshed me, and I know that they, I hope that they will refresh you. Them, them being here will, will, will bring us together, will keep us together. We see the, the church and the, those who should be respected. Next, we see the, the bond between the church and the church. Read verses 19 through 19 and 20. It says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the churches, church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house. Aquila and Priscilla, uh, Prisca, that is, that's the same name, as, that's the same person as Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla had been in Corinth when Paul first moved there. They were also some of the first converts there. But they actually moved with Paul to Ephesus to do the work there. Later on, we find them in Rome. There, and everywhere that they, everywhere that they moved, they had the church in their house. Uh, during these times, they didn't have the, uh, a building dedicated for the common life of the church, uh, the, way that they, the way that the Jewish synagogues have or that we often have today. So it depended upon wealthy members of the congregation to open up their homes. And so as, as those who open up their home every week, you can imagine how beloved Aquila and Priscilla were. Well, they send their greetings. You know, there's no FaceTime, there's no telephone, there's no Skype. But there is still this connectedness between the churches. You know, there's no formal official hierarchy noticeable in the New Testament. But there is still this recognition of connectedness. You are, you are believers in Jesus Christ. You are the church of Jesus Christ. You are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. And every single one of these churches has problems. And yet they still recognize them. They still greet them in the Lord. You're our brothers. And we ought to have that same mindset when we think about other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches other sound, true churches in our area, in our region, and around the world. There ought to be this heart. There ought to be this affection for, I gr- we greet you, brothers and sisters in Christ. We greet you, other, other congregations. Because in, in actuality, although we are smaller local congregations, we are a part of a great heavenly congregation. Jesus Christ did not only die for disparate individuals. He died to collect disparate individuals into one people of God. So that's what he did by his death. And one of the things that we should do is recognize that by loving our brothers and sisters in different places, in different churches, in different lands, greeting them. And of course, that also takes expression in our own church. Greet one another with the kiss of love. This was, a, this was something that would happen around the Mediterranean. It's a common way of showing affection and regard for, for family and friends. You know, we're probably uncomfortable with the kiss of love, but we ought to be using our bodies to show affection for one another. We, we ought to, when, when we see people, there ought to be kind of this way of, of with our bodies, welcoming them in. We're friends, we're family, we're brothers, we're sisters. I'm not afraid I'm going to catch a cold from you, okay? I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid of you. I, I'm not, I don't find you to be, you know, got the, got the cooties or something. I, I, come here, come here, man. You're my brother. You're my friend. 
And there ought to be that, that kind of hearty, affectionate greeting that we ought to give to one another. There ought to, be, there ought to be ways of expressing ourselves and saying, hey, we're one. We're together. And so that's what Paul is saying. Do that. Do that. Make that clear in the congregation. All right, lastly, finally, okay, you didn't expect a six-point sermon. So uh, here we go. Lastly, finally, verses uh, 21 through 24 says that this is the bond between the Lord and the church. It says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, Paul, Paul often used a secretary to write down the letters, uh, but often at the end, he would take up the letter for himself. And he would write it. It was a sign of authenticity so that they would know that this was a letter from him. It was also a way of saying, taking a, a, giving a personal element to the letter, saying, this is from me. This is from my heart. Somebody else wrote it down for me. This is from my heart. And he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. You know, no one could say about Paul that he didn't love people. 1 Corinthians 9 still stands out in my mind as this great example of Paul saying, hey, I, I have all these rights, but I laid down them all for the sake of the gospel. I laid down my rights in order that by all means I might win some. Paul says, I became all people. All things to all people. He became uncomfortable. He stretched outside of his own, uh, his, his own uh, comfort, outside of his own uh, place, outside of his own traditions, outside of his own culture. And he said, I will do whatever it takes to win people to Jesus Christ. So when we see Paul say this, we should never think that this is disconnected from his love for people or his willingness to do whatever it took to preach the gospel wherever he could go or to save people. At the same time, there are opponents to Jesus Christ. There are those who reject Christ and the church. There are those who oppose Christ and the church. There are those who persecute Christ and the church. And those who are recipients of, of that, and as those who have received very light persecution, it's sometimes hard to get into the mindset of, you know, people who are really facing difficulty, they really want Jesus to come. And they really do want to see all of God's enemies done away with. And so that's what Paul is expressing here. And so while we live in this time, while we're in these days, we're going to love our neighbor. We're going to love our enemy. We're going to do whatever we can to become all things to all people that by any means possible we might save some. But we desperately want Jesus to come and to do away with all of our enemies, all of his enemies, so that we might live at peace. And so there is that, there is that both and element there that we shouldn't lose. When we, when we see these these imprecations, that's what it's called when, when these curses are made. When we see those, that's how we ought to read all of those. In the here and now, we love our neighbor, we love our enemy. We preach the gospel, desiring that all might be saved. And yet we hope for the coming of Jesus Christ when in, in salvation and judgment, he comes to save a people for himself and to judge all those who have rejected and opposed his people. 
And so we ought to recognize that and hope for that. We ought to hope for the coming of Jesus Christ. This just follows right on from 1 Corinthians 15, which had spoken so clearly about the return of Jesus Christ, about the resurrection, about resurrection bodies. He's saying, Jesus, come, Lord, come. This is that, that word. Maybe you've ever seen this before, Maranatha. That's, the, that's an Aramaic term that came over into English. Uh, sorry, into Greek. And then we translate it as our Lord come. The idea is that this was the earliest cry of the church. Come, Lord Jesus. That ought to be our cry every week, every day. And Paul expresses his love for the Corinthians in verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Again, he had said hard things. It had been difficult. But he says, listen, I love you. My love is for you. And then most importantly, verse 23, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. It's because of the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are bonded to Jesus, that we are connected to Jesus. Jesus Christ came down. He became one of us. He took on a human nature. And then he fulfilled the law on our behalf. He fulfilled God's commands on our behalf and went to the cross and took on the penalty for our sins and then he rose again so that by, by being connected to him, by being bonded to him, we are bonded to him in his death. His death is for us. He has taken the penalty for our sin. And we are bonded to him in life so that when he returns, we will be resurrected with him. We ought to trust in Jesus Christ. I hope that you are trusting in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. And when we are bonded to Jesus Christ, when we are connected to Jesus Christ, we are not only bonded to Jesus Christ, but in one spirit, with one Lord, in one baptism, we are connected to all of those in all space, all time, surpassing all boundaries, all social divisions. We are connected to every other believer who has ever lived. We are one people in Jesus Christ. And all this chapter has done is said, hey, go, go show that. Show that here at home. Show that in the way that you relate to other believers all over the world. Praying for the persecuted, being concerned for the poor in other places. It's because we're one people. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, with us all. And it has been. The grace, of, the grace of Jesus Christ has saved us. And he has saved us to a body, to a people. And so let us live by, by, by trusting in Jesus Christ and loving one another. Father, uh, thank you for your goodness in, uh, in having our, your word given to us so that we might learn uh, even from the example of those who are respectable like Paul we see in his instructions what it looks like to love uh, the church, to love the church locally, to love the church globally, to uh, be concerned for uh, the poor, to be concerned for those that, according to the world, would be just be natural divisions. But we, sir, uh, by, by the grace of Jesus Christ, we surpass and transcend uh, all of those divisions. And we give and we love and we greet in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be sustained in that, to show ourselves to be disciples of Jesus Christ by our love for one another. Every day, 
being in one another's lives, being concerned with one another, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Help us, sustain us, strengthen us. Help us to be strong, to be firm, to be watchful, to be courageous, to act like men of courage. And help us to be loving in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.